Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So last week we looked in the book of Exodus chapter 1 and and one of the things that I tried to do last week was I tried to pour out or pour out, excuse me. I tried to point out some of the characteristics of God that, that we saw in the first chapter and things that we can apply maybe to encourage us or, or whatever to instruct us. And so um, one of the first things we talked about was the very beginning of Exodus chapter one. It, it gives you the list of, of Jacob's children there uh, that their families uh, came to Egypt. And uh, before that, and you don't have to turn there because I'm gonna just share it to you, with you, but in Genesis chapter 46 verse three, the Lord God was encouraging Jacob because Jacob was, he had just found out that Joseph, his son, who he thought had been dead for many, many years, was alive and was actually the second highest ruler in Egypt. And, and it had invited him and his family, the whole clan, basically, to come to Egypt. And that night, God spoke to Jacob. And he said to him, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. And we know in the Bible it tells us about 70 persons of that family, of that clan, uh, came to Egypt uh, from Canaan uh, during that famine that was going on. By the time uh, they leave Egypt, in fact, in the book of Numbers, God tells the children of Israel, God tells Moses to number the children of Israel. Um, and so they, do, they take a census of all the adult males above 20 years old that are able to go to war. And uh, they come up with a number of 603,550 adult males, 20 years and, and up, that are, are physically able to go to war. What that does not include is the tribe of Levi, and it does not include the children, the wives, the older men that were, you know, retirement age, if they had retirement back then, I don't think they did, but, you know, weren't able to go to war. And so if you extrapolate the numbers out, you can easily come up with a number of 2 million people easily. Some scholars think as much as 3 million people. So from 70 people to 2 to 3 million, and the very first characteristic we saw in, in Exodus chapter 1 is that God keeps his promises. God said, I'm going to make of you a mighty nation, and sure enough, he did that. And so as we were looking at that last week, it says that a new Pharaoh arose who did not know about Joseph. He didn't know about Joseph's contribution to Egypt's economy and to Egypt's prosperity. And he feared the Hebrews because there were so many of them in the land. Now, he had his reasons, but as we talked about last week, this was a demonic-inspired hatred and fear of the children of Israel. Because Satan knew the promise that God had given to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, that in her seed, that her seed would crush the serpent's head, speaking of the coming Messiah. And so Satan knew that, and so Satan was going to do everything he can to wipe out the, the children of Israel, because he does not want that Messiah to come. And you can see that throughout the Old Testament in many places. And so God keeps his promises. And so Pharaoh, this new Pharaoh, he's fearing the Hebrews, and uh, so what he does, they're, they're, they're turned into slaves, basically, in the land. And, and Pharaoh sets taskmasters over them to make them work as slaves. And their lives become difficult 
they're, they're, they're made to work out in the fields and out everywhere. And they're building cities for Pharaoh. And it says here in, in chapter 1, verse 12, that the more that the, that the Egyptians afflicted the children of Israel, the more the children of Israel grew and multiplied. And one of the things that I pointed out last week, and I'm going to mention it again here, is in Romans 8, 28. Paul says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And the next characteristic or the next thing I pointed out last week was that nothing in our lives is wasted by God. You might, you might think of some of the terrible things. Maybe you're going through something terrible right now. That's not wasted time in God's economy. Nothing in our lives is wasted by God. God sometimes uses afflictions, persecutions, lack of contentment, or makes us uncomfortable in some way to prepare us for a new work that he wants to do in us and possibly through us. For example, when the children of Israel first came to Egypt, they were welcomed, they were treated very, very well, and for probably many, many years, things were really well for the children of Israel there in Egypt. Now, had God wanted to deliver them, you know, after they had been in Egypt for maybe 20, 30 years, they probably wouldn't have wanted it to be delivered. Because why be delivered when things are actually going pretty good? So God is preparing the children of Israel to want to be delivered. So that's why they're going through this difficulty there. He's giving them a lack of contentment and a desire for something better. And God sometimes does that in our own lives. Well, later on here in verse 15 of Exodus chapter 1, it says, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shipphra and the name of the other was Pua. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife of the Hebrew woman and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. And I mentioned this last week. I'll mention it again this week. If you're a Bible note taker, if you like to highlight in your Bibles, you like to highlight in your neighbor's Bible, that's, this is what you want to highlight. Verse 17, but the midwives feared God. Such an important principle fearing God. And because the midwives feared God, we find out that God provided families, which meant households and husbands, children for them. And the next characteristic we pointed out last week was that God blesses those that fear him. He blesses those that fear him. So Pharaoh, you know, he's afraid of the Hebrews. Uh, he's turned them into the slaves. The more they afflict them, the more they prosper. And so when he realizes he wasn't getting anywhere with the Hebrew mid midwives, um, then in verse 22 it says, He commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. So basically he's saying, Hey, any Egyptians, if you see a Hebrew baby boy, you have the authority from me to, to throw that baby in the river to drown it in the Nile River. And so that sets the scene for chapter 2. There's this edict that's made that any male Jewish infant is to be drowned in the Nile River. And so as we get into chapter 2, it says that there's a man and a wife who both descended from the tribe of Levi. We'll find out later, by the way, that their name is Amran. The man's name is Amran, and the wife is Jochebed. They have a third child, 
because they already had two children, a daughter and a son. But they have this third child who's born during the time of this king's edict. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, we'll read about him. It says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. So they have this baby born during this time when babies, male babies were to be executed, were to be murdered. And so they, they, they don't fear the king, but they hide their baby. Can you imagine hiding a newborn baby for, for three months? I, I, you know, you read stories or maybe you've seen the movie The Hiding Place where, you know, the people, the Jews were hidden in homes. And uh, can you imagine hiding and you maybe have soldiers coming in there into the house looking for Jews and you, you've got a baby. And how do, you, how do you keep a baby quiet? And so you can imagine how hard it was. Well, when it became too hard for them, in verse 3 of Exodus chapter 2, it says, But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. What's interesting that we pointed out last week was the Hebrew word for ark that you see there in chapter 2, it's only used in one other place in the Bible, and you guessed it. It's back in Genesis in the story of Noah and Noah's ark. And so Jochebed, the mother she knew how the Lord had spared Moses, or excuse me, spared Noah and his family from the flood of the ark. And so in faith, she builds a tiny little ark for her baby and puts her baby in the Nile River, believing that God's going to spare her child. And so in verse 5 of Exodus chapter 2, and you guys, have you been to Sunday school or you've, you know, you've read the Bible, you know this story. It's a beautiful story. Um, but in verse 5 of chapter 2, it says, Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked alongside the river, or along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. There's an ancient Jewish myth. Again, it's a myth. It's not in the Bible. But according to Jewish mythology, when Pharaoh's daughter looked into this little ark to see the baby, that it says they said that an angel pinched Moses, little baby Moses, so that he would cry at the right moment. And, and you know, who can, who can not pick up a crying little baby? You know, you just, oh. It's so there's that affection. And so obviously this happened to this daughter of Pharaoh. And so, according to Exodus chapter 2, verse 7, then his sister, she was standing, you know, she was kind of watching from a distance. And she comes up to Pharaoh's daughter, and she, and she says, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. So not only did Jochebed get to have her baby back to nurse the baby, the baby wouldn't be killed, but she's getting paid to nurse her own child. Fascinating. And it is the characteristic that we pointed out also. God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. I hope you're encouraged when you read stories like this. Jochebed trusted God with the life of her baby boy, and God showed up big time and blessed her big time. 
In verse 10 of chapter 2, it says, And the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses, and she said, Because I drew him out of the water. Now, there's an ancient Hebrew historian by the name of Josephus. And he wrote about this, and he said, According to Josephus, this Pharaoh, and he names the Pharaoh's daughter, she was without children. And so the fact that Moses would be adopted, so to speak, or maybe probably literally by this Pharaoh's daughter would be that would result that Moses would be the apparent heir. He'd be like the prince of Egypt. I think they might make a movie, or maybe they did, but he'd be he'd be basically the heir to the throne of Pharaoh. And what's fascinating about that is in Exodus, or excuse me, Exodus, Acts chapter 7, verse 22, Stephen, he's giving a history of the Jewish people before the Jews, uh, before he's actually uh, martyred for his faith. And he says in verse 22, Moses was learned, or learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. So this, he's got this complete Egyptian education. You know, he's just, he's just in, inundated in the culture, basically, from a tiny baby, or probably two, three years old, on. But what's fascinating about that is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24, it says this, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now you've probably read that before too, but think about this. Here's this young man who's raised, he's inundated in the Egyptian culture. You know, they feared the Hebrews. They didn't like the Hebrews. So you can bet that they didn't try to encourage his Hebrew culture. They probably tried to make him forget that he was Hebrew. Maybe they didn't even tell him he was Hebrew. Who knows? But here it says, when he grew of age, he forsook Egypt. And so the question I asked last week was, when and where was that instilled in Moses? When and where did he come up with this, this desire uh, to not to forsake Egypt? And what I honestly believe is from the moment that baby Moses was given back to Jochebed to nurse him, that she realized that she had a very small window to, to, to instill the love of Jesus, or the love of God, the knowledge of God, the God of the children of Israel, to her children, to her son. And we don't know how long Jochebed had to nurse Moses. There's some people say probably between two and three years of age. So can you imagine, from the moment you've got this nursing child, maybe three months old, a little bit old, maybe well, it would have been about, he would have been about three months old, till say two to three years old, and that's your window of opportunity to instill your instill as much knowledge about God and, and, and everything about him that you can. As you can imagine, she's nursing her baby and she's, she's probably speaking to her baby, Yahweh is Lord. Probably saying, you know, Egypt's nothing. The gods of Egypt are nothing. The maker of heaven and, and earth, he's the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She's probably, as he's getting a little bit older, Yahweh's got a plan and a purpose for your life, little baby. I mean, you can, any of you mothers, you understand that. You would want to pour as much into your child as you could because you know soon enough she, he's going to be gone. 
sometimes we take for granted our children. We, we don't think about that. And, you know, I'm, I'm a grandfather. Now I've got four grown children, and, and I'm watching my grandchildren starting to grow, too. And, you know, when you're in the midst of the, <laughs> the diaper-changing stage or the crying-at-night stage, you're kind of like, when is this going to end? You know, and you older parents, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, when is it going to end? And then pretty soon it ends. And you look back and go, man, where did the, t where did the time go? <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> I get emotional about that. You know, there's a Jesuit priest that said this, give me the child for the first seven years and I'll give you the man. And it's so true. Proverbs 22 verse 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old, he will not depart from it. So this is what we looked at last week. That's where we left off last Sunday between verses 10 and verses 11 of chapter 2. By the way, there's a gap of 40 years between verse 10 and verse 11. Moses, we'll find out later, is going to live to be 120 years old. And his life neatly divides into three 40-year segments. The first 40 years, coming up to verse, uh, through verse 10 of chapter 2, the first 40 years will be spent becoming something. He was raised up to be a Hebrew prince, or excuse me, an Egyptian prince. Josephus even says that, that as a young man, he led armies, uh, Egyptian armies into battle against the Ethiopians. He was heir to the throne. He had all the education, and, and you think back to all that Egypt did with the pyramids and all their knowledge, that was all instilled in Moses. And so in those first 40 years, Moses' life was spent becoming something. He was something all right. He was the next in line to Pharaoh. The next 40 years will be spent becoming nothing, going from something to nothing. And then the last 40 years will be spent learning how God can make something out of nothing. You think about Moses, he went from being a Hebrew slave's baby from a human point of view, no hope, no future, to, in God's eyes, he'd be the man that God was going to raise up to deliver his people, the children of Israel. And so, as I mentioned earlier, Moses' first 40 years was spent becoming something. But now it's going to be spent becoming nothing. We'll look at that here in verse 11. It says, Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? Then he said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. In Acts chapter 7, verse 25, Stephen's speaking about this. And he speaks about this incident when, when, that, when that other Hebrew says, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian? And it says in chapter 7, verse 25 of Acts, For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. 
So at age 40, Moses has this, this knowledge, this, 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 just this strength, this faith in his, that God's going to use me, and he's going to use me to deliver the children of Israel. I want you to observe the significance of training a child in the way that he should go. I mentioned that in Proverbs 22. At age 40, Moses is now, he's sensing the Lord's calling on his life. And in his own estimation, Moses is ready. I mean, he thinks, hey, I'm ready. I, you know, God's, God raised me up in Pharaoh's house to do this. And I'm ready. I'm, I'm prepared. I'm equipped. And in his own estimation, Moses thinks he's now equipped to deliver the children of Israel from bondage. And one of the point characteristics we looked at last week, uh, or that we didn't get to last week, we're going to look at this week, is that God doesn't call the prepared person. God prepares the person he calls. Let me say that again. Does, God doesn't call the prepared person. He prepares the person he calls. Moses has a problem that stands in the way of many people who are called into ministry, and that's pride in his own abilities. Think about it. In Moses' own strength, he couldn't even successfully bury one Egyptian. And yet later on, when he's walking in the strength that God provides, he's going to be able to bury an entire army of Egyptians in the Red Sea. Amazing. But there's going to be a big difference in Moses by that time, and that's what we're looking at this morning. This morning we're looking at God's preparation of the deliverer. Because God is not only preparing his people, but he's also preparing Moses to be the deliverer. So we pick it up here, verse 15 of Exodus chapter 2. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to Ruel, their father, he said, How is it that you've come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah his daughter to Moses, and she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. So what? let's set the scene here. Moses, he realizes that he's been found out, and he probably figures that the Pharaoh's going to find out that he murdered a fellow Egyptian. So he flees to Midian. And we're told that he sits down by a well. And I, I just kind of had to chuckle when I read that because it's like, how many times in the Bible does somebody sit down by a well and something significant happens? Well, something significant is going to happen with, with Moses as well. So he sees these women, these shepherdesses coming. And the daughters of Ruel, they're the shepherds, or shepherdesses, I should say. And Moses is observing them, and he's watching them go down into the well. They, they're, they're drawing up water, and they're bringing up to water their flocks. And then he sees these Midianite shepherds, these male shepherds, and they chase those, the women away so that they could use the water because they're lazy. They don't want to draw their own water, so they, they wait till, they get the, till the women get the water, and then they chase them away and take the water because it was work going down into a well to get water in those days. And so Moses watches that. And listen, Moses had sensed that God was calling him to deliver a, a nation, but God presents him right now with an opportunity to first to deliver a few shepherd women. The first lesson in preparation 
is to be faithful in small things. I like that in Zechariah, that verse uh, 4, verse 10, it says, For who has despised the day of small things? Maybe God's got you, you think you're in a kind of an insignificant role or you're in an insignificant situation. Don't despise those times. Again, nothing is wasted in God's economy. God's using that time in your life and in my life. Faithfulness in small things. Jesus told the parable of the talents to the, the two men, the two servants that actually took his talents and multiplied them. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things, and I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Of your Lord. So here's Moses. He's on the way to becoming nothing at this point. And so the Lord gives him an opportunity to deliver a few Midian shepherdesses. So anyways, you know, uh, having the water stolen from them, the, the, the ladies probably would have had to wait till those shepherds were gone, and then they'd go back down and get some more water again. So this seems like it was maybe an ongoing thing. And so they get home early. And it's like, you know, normally it's like a couple hours before you even get home. Why are you home so early, their dad says. And they said, well, this Egyptian helped us. And he's like, well, where is he? And, you know, you see this oriental hospitality there. That's just evident throughout scriptures in the Old Testament. So he's like, go get the man, invite him back to the house to eat bread with us. And so they go and they back and they invite Moses to their home and, and, he, and he eats with them. He evidently starts staying there with them. And we find out it says Moses was content to live with the man. There's a second lesson in preparation. Contentment with where the Lord has you contentment with where the Lord has you. Sometimes, you know, we get into a situation and all that we can think about is what's the next, the next place or the next thing, you know, and, and, and we, we just lose sight of where we're at right now and yet God wants to use us exactly where we are. Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13, Paul said this, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. He's probably never been to Iowa, by the way. No, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> that was a bad joke. Um, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, being a prince of Egypt, Moses probably lacked for nothing. He probably was never in need of anything. Now all of that is stripped away. All that Moses has right now is food. He's got clothing. He's got shelter placed over his head. And he's got something to be occupied with. That's all he's got. Everything from Egypt is completely stripped away. This is going to be invaluable for Moses because he's going to lead a nation through the wilderness and you know people need to lead by example so he needs to he needs to live this example himself and that's what God is doing in his life right now teaching him to be content with what he has Moses's contentment is evidenced in the fact that he marries marries Zipporah one of Ruel's uh, daughters who's by the way his name is Jethro also and has sons by her 
at this point, the fact that he married and had a son, it appears, although we're not told, it appears that he's given up on delivering the children of Israel, or at, la at least maybe now he realizes it's not God's timing. So he's just content to just, I'm just going to, this is where God has me, I'm just going to live here. I'll marry, I'll have children, I'm just going to stay here. So he occupies and he focuses on where the Lord has him now at the moment. That's an important thing for all of us to do. And so she bore him a son, we're told, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. So every time he would call his son Gershom, it would remind him that he's a pilgrim there. And you know, for you and I, so often, you know, maybe things start going really well in your life or you get caught up in, in kind of the, the, the culture. It's very important that we remember that we're strangers and pilgrims in this life, that this world is not our home. It's so important to remember that. And so Moses has this constant reminder whenever he calls out his son's name. And it's not only a reminder that Midian was not his home, but it's also to remind him how, how God nurtured him in the wilderness. God took care of him as he was a pilgrim and a stranger. Um, and so this reminder, it's for him to not forget the lessons that he's going to learn in the backside of the desert. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. You know, the Lord God told the children of Israel when they, when they came out of bondage and they were coming into the promised land, he tells them, and we'll get to it in Exodus 22, he says, you shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And so it's just a reminder, you know, of where you came from, what, what you were like, because sometimes we forget that. We, you know, we, we get saved, we, we grow in the Lord, we become maybe mature, hopefully we become mature Christians, and then someone comes into the fellowship or you get into a relationship or someone and they're a baby Christian and they do things that baby Christians do and you're like, man, are they ever going to get it? And you kind of forget, hey, I was once like that myself, you know. So anyway, Zipporah has a son. We're told his name is Gershom. He, by the way, will have another son, and his son will be named Eliezer, which means my God is, is help, or God, God is my helper. So rule, we're told here, is the priest of Midian. Now what's interesting about that is the land of Midian was named after one of Abraham's sons by his concubine, or his, his, he had more than, Sarah wasn't his first, was his first wife. Later on, he marries a lady by the name of Keturah and has children through him, and, and Midian is one of those children. So Ruel is a priest of Midian, and his name means friend of God. In fact, in Exodus 18, Jethro, or his rules, the same person, he's going to be officiating the burnt offerings and sacrifices to the Lord. So it's very possible, although we're not told, it's very possible he was a priest of the true Lord God of Israel at that time in Midian. So if you think about this, God sent Moses, because he arranged the circumstances, God sent Moses to a specific family in Midian to live with and probably to learn from to learn from him, learn contentment, definitely learn shepherding, you know, learn about, uh, maybe learning about the God of Israel. And then we look now at the third and perhaps the biggest lesson in preparation, probably the hardest one for most of us, and that's humility. Humility. Think about it. Here's the next in line to Pharaoh, and he's living as a shepherd uh, in the middle of nowhere. In the, in the middle of the, of, of the Midian wilderness, basically. Shepherds were considered the lowest 
of the low class in Egypt. They were detestable to the Egyptians. And shepherds in those days actually didn't have a very good reputation. When they came in from taking care of their flocks and they came into town, things happened to disappear when shepherds were in town. They had a reputation for being thieves. And so here's this next in line to Pharaoh. And what's his occupation? He's a shepherd, the lowest of the low. Now, it's bad enough being a shepherd, the lowest occupation a person could have. But to make matters worse, he's a shepherd, as we find out in chapter 3, in the backside of the desert. He's not even in, you know, in Egypt. He's in the backside of nowhere. He's in the middle of nowhere. And to make even matters worse than that. So he's a shepherd. He's in the backside of the desert. He's 40 years old by this time, and he doesn't even have his own flock. He's taking care of his father-in-law's flocks. You know, he would think at 40 years old, he'd already have his own business going. You know, he'd be a little successful. In the eyes of the world, Moses is a failure. He's a failure at 40 years old. At least from a human standpoint, he looks that way. But this is exactly where God wants Moses at this point in his life. Exactly where God wants him. Think about this too. Moses probably never had to work a day of his life in Egypt. And now he's working probably for the very first time in his life, and he's tending sheep. He's going to need the experience for tending sheep because he's going to be tending an entire nation of sheep that love to wander and love to bite each other. So he's, this is a very good education for, for Moses. He's also learning that the sheep are not his. I mean, because he's taking care of his father-in-law. They're not even his sheep. And this is going to be important, too, because he's recognizing he's going to learn that he's a steward of the owner of the sheep. As pastors, that's something that a pastor needs to always remember. These are not my people. These are God's people. I'm just a steward. I'm just, I'm just an under-shepherd. You know, you're not my people. <laughs> you're the Lord's people. I'm just, he just has me here to kind of bore you for an hour and a half, you know, and then send you home and stuff. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Hopefully I'm just kidding. But... Um, You know, later on, Moses is going to be tested on this whole stewardship of the sheep business, and he's going to come out shining. Back in Exodus, or not back, but later on in Exodus 32, Moses is up on Mount Horeb. The children of Israel are already out of Egypt, and he's told to go up, and he's going to receive the tablets, the Ten Commandments on two tablets. And as he's, as he's coming down from there, the, 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 he's like, they're hearing this commotion down in the valley below where the children of Israel are encamped. And uh, in Exodus 32, verse 7, and you know the story, that's when Aaron makes the golden calf, you know, and they're worshiping the calf and stuff because they don't know what happened to Moses. And so in Exodus 32, verse 7, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go get down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. This is a test for Moses. And he comes through shining. Because a few verses later in verse 11, Moses pleaded with the Lord as God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty arm? It's like they're both arguing. They're your people. No, they're your people. <laughs> Lord, they're your people. You can have them, man. I don't want them, you know. So Moses is learning. He needs to learn this, that the sheep are not his. Now, you know, some people would think that being out in the wilderness, you know, he's 40 years old and he's, he's by the way, he's going to be there for 40 years before he's actually called to deliver the children of Israel. 
And you might say, maybe he's just in a holding pattern or it's wasted time. I, you know, maybe you've gone through that in your own life. You know, it's like, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. I feel like I'm just like, I'm, I'm just on hold. Like God's got my life on pause or something, or I'm on the shelf. Listen, this is not wasted time. Moses is not on the shelf until the Lord can use him. The Lord is forging and equipping and molding Moses during those 40 years to become nothing, but he's preparing him to become the deliverer that the Lord can use. And his time back in Egypt wasn't wasted either when he was, when he was the first 40 years. Remember back in Acts 7.22, it says, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptian, was mighty in words and deeds. Listen, he was, excuse me, he was trained as a scholar in Egypt. And later on, he's going to be called upon to write the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. You need to have, you need to have those skills. And so he was, he's, was trained up. So that's not wasted uh, time in Egypt. He interacted with royalty. After all, his father-in-law, or his, his it'd be his grandpa, I guess, was, yeah, it'd be his grandpa, was Pharaoh, you know. His mom was the Pharaoh's daughter. He probably had relatives that were, you know, somewhere in the bloodline. So he interacted with royalty. He knows how to deal with kings. And when he leads the children of Israel out through the wilderness, he's going to pass through several kingdoms, and he's going to interact with different kings. And we'll read about that when we get to it. But that was a skill that he learned, how to be diplomatic. Josephus, if, if, he, if he is true and accurate, he says that uh, fair, uh, Moses led armies into battle against the Ethiopians. Even that military training is going to help him because as the children uh, are, of Israel are coming out of, and they're going through the wilderness, they're going to engage in some battles against their enemies, and Moses is going to lead them. So even his time in Egypt wasn't wasted time. None of this time is wasted. God's using it. None of the time, none of your time is wasted time. God's using it in your life. So then we get to verse 22, or actually verse 23. And by the way, another 40 years passes between 22 and verse 23. And so in verse 23, it says, Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. And the next characteristic, or the last one that I wanted to point out, was that God hears the cries of his people. Now when it says here that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's not, he's, God's not like me. You know, we're getting ready for this trip. And I, I put something down and I walk into another room and the next like, where did I put that? And I'm spending more time looking for things because I forget where I place them. God has not forgotten the children of Israel. So when it says that God remembered his covenant, it wasn't that he forgot his covenant. What it means is that now he's turning his active attention to their plight. He's now ready to deliver uh, the people that he, and he's been preparing them for it and now they're ready. And so verse, uh, so we get to chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So 40 years of becoming nothing. He's at the end of these 40 years. He's about to graduate with his BS and D degree, his backside of the desert degree. I like it. You know, this is not unique to Moses, by the way. 
several other people that God used in the Bible also spent time in their own backside of the desert. For example, Elijah. In fact, Elijah is going to come back to a cave in this exact same vicinity where Moses is at Mount Horeb. Later on, he's going to spend some time there alone with the Lord. Ezekiel, great prophet of the Lord. He's going to spend some time in isolation out in the middle of nowhere by the river Chabar. God's going to speak to him there. He's going to be ministered to there. Paul, the apostle Paul, when he got saved, he went to Arabia and he was in Arabia for something like 12 years. We don't know anything about what went on there. But that was his backside of the desert. And John, we just finished the book of Revelation. John spent time on the island of Patmos, banished to the island of Patmos. And that's where God gave him the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's not unique to Moses. It's probably not unique to any of us either. God sometimes has us go through those backsides of the desert, and that's those times where he can mold us and shape us when he wants to do a work in us and through us. And so he's at the end of this 40 years. He's about ready to graduate with his BSD degree. And so verse 2, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. You think about it. You're walking around in the wilderness. There's that sagebrush I saw yesterday. You know, hey, there's that cactus, you know, and wow. Oh, there's those, the, you know, there must be a dead animal. There's some vultures over there, you know. I mean, what's there to excite you when you're going through the backside of the desert? You're spending time out. There's probably not too much to distract you. And so you see this burning bush. <laughs> Wow, there's a burning bush. How did it burn? And wait a minute, it's not even being consumed. What's going on here? That would definitely get your attention out in the middle of nowhere. Think about it. In Egypt, with all its distractions, Moses could have possibly walked by and wouldn't even have noticed something like that. But out in the wilderness area, wow, check it out, a burning bush. You know, sometimes it's in those wilderness times, those backside of the desert where we're in a place of, you know, just solid solitude or, or, you know, it's just a place of quietness. That's, that's when the Lord can speak to us. Because when things are going well, man, we're just, we're not tuned in to him. We're not listening for him. It's in those wilderness experiences we go through when God speaks the loudest to us. Not that he's raising his voice, but we're in a better place to hear him. I want to encourage you today, if being, you know, we're talking about this wilderness experience, if, if that resonates with you, because maybe you're going through something like that right now, I want to encourage you, listen for the voice of your shepherd. Listen for him, because he's speaking. Verse 4, So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. So this is probably freaking Moses out. I mean, not only is it a burning bush that's not being consumed, but now it's a talking burning bush that's not being consumed. And the bush speaks, and he knows his name. And he hears the Lord God saying, Moses, Moses. You see, God knows who you are in the wilderness. God knows where you're at. He knows you in your wilderness. And so Lord God tells Moses, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. You know, even in Egypt, 
the pagan priests in, the, in, in, the, in Egypt, they removed their sandals when they entered temples. So Moses would, he, right away he would know what, what was being spoken of. He's entering into the presence of the Lord God. It's holy ground because God is holy. Verse 6, Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Jesus later on is going to use this exact same passage to educate the Sadducees in his day. Because among other things, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And so they were throwing this hypothetical situation out to Jesus. Hey, there's this, this woman and, and, and uh, she married... You know, this man married and, and the woman died, or excuse me, the, the husband died and she married the husband's brother and he died and they went all the way down through seven brothers and all of them died and never, you know, who's in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? And they, they thought they had tricked Jesus. And Jesus uses this passage and he basically says, notice in this verse that God didn't say, I was the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, I am the God of your father. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, they're still alive. They're still alive. Verse 7, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from, the land, from that land to a good and a large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. There's something significant I think you should see in that verse 7 and 8. He says, I have surely seen their oppression. The Lord knew what was going on. He could see what was going on. Sometimes you're in a situation and people can see what you're going on. They, they see that you're going through something. And then they, maybe they come to your aid or they, they try to encourage you or whatever. So he'd seen their oppression. But he says also, I've heard their cry. And then he says, I know their sorrows. I've seen, I've heard, I know. And then he says, I've come down. I've come down. So now, in God's eyes, the deliverer is prepared to be used by God to minister. He's spent 40 years becoming something. The next 40 years, he's become nothing. And now God wants to show him how he can make something out of nothing. And so God's ready to use him at this point. Not only is the deliverer prepared, by the way, at 80 years old, my brother was visiting me. He, he, they, 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 were, they spent the night. I was hoping they were going to come to church, but they took off because they wanted to get further along on the road. They're going to the same reunion. And, and uh, he's, he's uh, older than me. And uh, he, anyways, he was talking about retirement, and uh, that's not even on my radar anywhere. But, uh, but it's interesting. You know, sometimes you think you're going to get to this age, and now it's just like, I'm just going to take it easy and stuff. But listen, Moses was four, 80 years old, and that's when God was ready to use him at 80 years old. So the deliverer is prepared. The people are prepared for a deliverer. They've been crying out for a deliverer for 40 years of this hard bondage that they've been going through, more than 40 years. And not only is the deliverer prepared and the people prepared, but the land of Canaan is prepared. How's that? How is the land of Canaan prepared? He says, 
that he's bringing them to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Listen, back in Genesis chapter 15, way back, when Abraham was alive, and God was giving him the promise, the, the promised land to Abraham, and, and he was telling, he was foretelling Abraham that his descendants would be slaves in Egypt. He says this in Genesis 15, verses 13 through 16. He said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." So God was preparing the land for the children of Israel as well. Because the, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, these were the, if, if you look at history, the Canaanites were some of the most evil, wicked, sinful people. They were terrible. You, they, they sacrificed children left and right. They did all kinds of, they were just m completely morally debased. They had no morals at all. And so God allowed them 400 years to repent, and they don't repent. And so God's going to send the children of Israel in and to give the land to the children of Israel. You see, God doesn't time, measure time chronologically, but he measures it morally. And it makes me wonder, what about our nation? How much more time does our nation have? Is God measuring it chronologically, or is he measuring it morally? I believe he's measuring, measuring it morally. It's something to think about. So we get to verse 10 now. Come now, therefore, this is the Lord speaking, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So Moses, after 80 years, is now prepared to be used by God to deliver the children of Israel. The people are prepared for a deliverer. The land is prepared for the children of Israel to come into it. But we're going to look at, next time, the reluctant deliverer. Because Moses doesn't think he's ready. So we'll look at that next time. Why don't you stand? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I just want to encourage you, as we've been just thinking about those characteristics of God. You know, these stories are not just interesting stories for us to read and to go, hmm, oh, that's fascinating. They're meant to encourage you. They're meant to instruct you. And they're meant to correct us as well. And so this morning, I just, I just pray that the, the Lord spoke to you this morning through his word, and that his spirit is just doing a work. And again, it, you know, if you're going through a time where you feel like you're wasting time or you're, you're, you're you know, it's like I, I resonate with that. I know I'm in the backside of the desert right now. Listen to his voice. Be content with where you're at and occupy we're told to occupy until the Lord returns. What are you doing for the Lord? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for the story of Moses and, Lord, how you took him from something and turned him into nothing. But, Lord, that was all part of your plan and your purpose. And that, Lord, now that he is nothing, now that he is humble, now that he's been faithful in small things, Lord, that now you're ready to use him and that he's content. And so, Lord, I, I just pray for us that we would learn those lessons, that we would earn our BSDs as well, 
that you would use us, Lord God, that you would do a work through us and in us, in our generation. So we thank you for your word this morning. I pray your blessing on your people in Jesus' name. Amen. You can stay standing for this last song if you would.